Bless his holy name. If we had 10,000 tongues, Lord, we could not praise you enough. Bless his holy name. As we come down to the next to the last of our sermons dealing with the gospel above all and focusing on the importance of one, we come to a passage in Ephesians that speaks to us about putting on the whole armor of God. As a preface this morning, I want you to understand regardless of all the challenges you might face, regardless of all the tribulations you may be currently dealing with, regardless of all the problems and the mayhem in the world, it all has one source. And that source is the evil one. And that's what we're going to look at together this morning. I ask that you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. And if you found a sacred scripture, would you please just give a shout, give thanks. And we ask that you would stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 20 and the word of God says this finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand and in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that my words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. 
May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. Now, this passage this morning really falls into three different sections here. First, we must put on the whole armor of God that we might be strong in the Lord and in the power of whose might? His might. Secondly, we see that we must put on that whole armor so that we will gain the advantage and that we're able to stand firm. And then finally, we see here that there is a focus for us to put on the whole armor of God, which includes prayer, so that we can pray constantly standing for all believers, especially those who fiercely proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the very meditations of my heart be found acceptable in your sight, for you are my God, my Lord, and my Redeemer. Lord, as we deal with this difficult subject, as many of us who are Christians don't recognize the full thrust of this passage, we don't recognize who is our Savior, and who is the one that opposes us, that opposes everything that you do. But Lord, let us also glean from this passage strength, knowing that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Knowing that you have not given us a spirit of fear, and knowing that Satan has been defeated in all of his minions by what Jesus has already done, so this focus is really on those who do not know you. And that then spend their time trying to hinder the work of the gospel. It is in the precious name of your son and our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, amen. Well, let's jump right in here. Let's recognize that we must put on this whole armor of God so that we might be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, this comes right after Paul has given great instructions to the church, the Christian household, and he's talked to them about how to deal with your children. He's talked to them how you are going to deal as a couple together in marriage And now he exhorts us to be strong in the Lord. And the reason here for this call of arms is that they need to recognize, just like we need to recognize, that we're in an ongoing battle with the powers of darkness. And then Paul sets the tone here in his transition, and he uses this one word. He says, finally. He wants us to recognize that we must understand that after we have understood everything else in the book of Ephesians, finally, we must recognize that we must be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. This whole idea of being strong is really in the passive and it tells us that we can't be strong in and of ourselves, but we must be strengthened by what God does in our lives. This shows exactly what's happening in Ephesians 3.16 when Paul says that may he grant you to be strengthened in the power through the Spirit in your inner being. 
Here he's trying to say that we can't power ourselves. We're not the energetic bunny or anything here. That our power comes from what? An external source. It comes from the Lord Jesus himself. Colossians 1, 10 through 11. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy. As a Christian, it is Christ that gives us our strength alone. We are no longer under the tyranny of the prince of the air because we're no longer sons and daughters of disobedience because we're believers. And it is Christ who strengthens us. It is Christ who gives us the tools that we need to be victorious in our spiritual battle. Then he calls us to be strong in the midst of this battle. And this is not just some fly-by-night command that he's bringing here. This admonition to be strong is sown all the way through the Bible. Remember when God spoke to Joshua and he told him, be strong and of good courage? Remember David in 1 Samuel 36 and it says, David found strength in the Lord And then we see God himself speak again in Ezekiel 10 and 12 when he tells them the people are gathered together after they had been in exile. And God says to them, I will make them strong in the Lord. The power, there is power in the name of Jesus. And we recognize there's power in his might. This dynamic phrase here is used to the all-powerful strength of God. The all-powerful strength of God that was a strength that raised Christ from the dead and exalted him to a place of honor far above all rulers and authorities. You You need to write that down. The apostle prayed that they might understand the extraordinary power that they had working on their behalf because they belong to God. He wanted them to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards those who believe according to his great might. Now, Paul explains why believers need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might and how they are appropriate this. He tells them that you, my friend, are engaged in a deadly spiritual battle on the side of God against the devil. And the only way to prevail against this is that you must put on the full armor of God. This comes out as an imperative, as a command, put on the full armor of God which really explains a warning that comes out of 10. He's telling us, be strong in the Lord. Putting on the armor as believers will equip us to deal with any attack from the devil. And really, when you think about this and you look back at Ephesians 4.24, look at this. Putting on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in the true righteousness and holiness. So Paul is saying, I want you to take off the old humanity and put on the new man. 
I want you to put on the new, and by putting on the new self, it's the same as putting on the armor of God. This phrase, full armor, tells us that we need a complete set of weapons, both that will be defensive and offensive. And this armor was an armor worn by heavily armed foot soldiers. 2 Corinthians 6, 7 through 10. By truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We are just the opposite of what the world says that we are. It is the armor of God that supplies this confidence. And this armor of God is the same armor that God himself wore. This weaponry that he now gives through Jesus, through the believers. Look at Isaiah 11 and 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his ways and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah is depicting the Lord of hosts as a warrior, one that is fighting with his own armor and he's fighting so that he might vindicate his people. These weapons were now offered believers, namely truth, righteousness, and salvation. And what does Paul tell us in Ephesians 5 and 1? Be imitators of God. And the reason we as believers are to be clothed with the armor is that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. To stand, to stand firm, to withstand. The first reference is to standing and it involves resisting and holding our positions against all of the devil's schemes. We are never to surrender to his evil opposition, but to prevail over it. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. Doesn't mean weapons won't be formed against us. They just won't prosper the way the person who formed them intended them to. This phrase, schemes of the devil, is used in the plural because the devil never runs out of schemes. It's a constant, repeated attack of great variety, uh, diabolical schemes, left and right. This evil one who launches his flaming arrows against the saints. He brings every kind of attack and assault of the evil one. So, Pastor, why does he do this? Because Satan's goal is to gain a foothold and exert his influence over the lives of Christians through their uncontrolled anger or through lies or through stealing or through unwholesome talk. Any conduct that is what? Characteristic of the old self. He wants you to not evolve but de-evolve. He wants you to go back to the old self, the old humanity. 
And there's a quote here from Snodgrass that I think is incredibly important. And it says that the mention of schemes of the devil reminds us of the trickery and subterfuge by which evil temptation presents itself in our lives. Listen to this. Evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. It gains entrance by appealing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. But it's bait, it's camouflage. The apostle's intention here, he wants us to put on the whole armor of God that we might prevail against the strategies and the tactics of the devil. This notion of doing battle with Satan and the power of darkness might seem frightening when you first hear it. And it's definitely formidable. But what we need to recognize is that because we can call on his name, because we belong to him, that we have more than what we need for the battle. He continually gives us confidence because we recognize that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. But if we're not to be unprotected, if we're not to be exposed, then we must put on the whole armor of God. Ephesians 1, 20 through 22, that he worked in Christ when he raised us from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Just remember that when we get there, above every name that is named, not only in this age, not only in the present, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as a head over all things. This authority that we receive from Christ has the power to break spiritual warfare. We recognize that spiritual warfare becomes more immediate when you are pursuing a total sold out walk to God. And when the church is legitimately walking in the will of God and all that it does, it comes under incredible attack. Evil powers finally cannot hinder the progress of the gospel and all things are subjected to Christ. It is because God's victory in his son that we believers are in battle at all. Satan doesn't battle people who are already on his team. And isn't it amazing that Paul is urging us not to win the victory because the victory is already won. He's urging us to stand and to withstand the devil's schemes, to stand firm, to have a posture that is both defensive and offensive. As believers, we live in the already and the not yet. We have eternal life already, but we don't have the fulfillment yet. So as Christians, we recognize that, or we should recognize, 
We are not fighting against flesh and blood, but against evil spirits and authorities. The spiritual, powerful, cunning nature of our opposition makes our use of the armor of God necessary. You know, when you look back and he says that we do not wrestle, that word parlay means when two men were engaged in a contest in which the goal was that one man would overthrow the other and then put his foot on his neck. Isn't it amazing that how many times you've seen the same imagery speaking of Jesus that everything has been put where? Under his feet? Even if you go back to Genesis in three, chapter 3 and it says he's going to bruise his heel. The deal here shows that we have a struggle. When he talks about wrestling, we have a struggle that is not academic that it is close, that it's hand-to-hand combat, that it is a struggle that we have to deal with day in and day out as long as we want to serve the Lord. He wants us to recognize that this spiritual warfare is of a cosmic proportion, but that the ultimate opposition will not be able to stop the move of the gospel But their goal is to wrestle with us. He says there's a plurality of powers here. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces in heavenly places. here that they rulers here is the word RK and it means a supernatural being okay and then you have authorities which is exousia which means organized administrative power and he's already talked to us about this back in Ephesians 310 And he wants us to recognize that these are the people that we are confronting in this present darkness. When God kicked Satan out of heaven, did he not take one third of the angels with him? These are the people he's talking about. These are the cosmic powers. Now, when he was, Paul was probably referring to Artemis at that time because Artemis spoke of having the ability to speak to evil spirits. First uh, Corinthians 10.20. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Then he gives us this qualifying phrase here. This present darkness This is the darkness that we extol, that we have been delivered from, that we thank God that he has brought us into his marvelous light 
out of the darkness of this world. Do you not recognize you live in a world that is characterized by darkness? Abortion being justified. Homosexuality being legitimized. Do you not understand that that could not have the force of power that it's had in the last 10 or 15 years if that wasn't demonic? When he speaks to us about every, the fact that we should not be afraid because we've been given every spiritual gift in Christ Jesus in heavenly places, that we've been made alive, that we're seated with Christ in his domain, but he reminds us that our struggle is against subjected powers. They have been subjected by Christ. They still hinder us, but they can't ultimately stop us. The relationship of all these powers to the devil is not specifically shown here in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. But we see that they all belong to him, that they're all working and singing the same sheet music. They're not independent of the devil, that it is an organized, strategic, intentional attack. It's a tyranny of these who are children of the disobedient. And if we are Christians, we have to, we cannot forestall any of this through our human effort or our human exertion. We need to put on the whole armor of God. First Peter 5 and 19, because we, I'm paraphrasing, because we know God and the whole world is lying under the power of the evil one. That's what we're dealing with. Satan and his host are trying to destroy humanity at every level. But there's a clarion call here that we are to put on the whole armor of God so that we might be strong, that we might be strong in the might of the Lord, and that we might stand. Now this call for putting on the whole armor here is so that we might stand against the devil's schemes, understanding because our battle is against evil spirits, powers, and authorities. Now we have this, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. And we have to take up this armor that we are able to withstand and to stand. And then God spells out for us the specific purpose of each of the elements that we are to put on so that we might withstand the devil in this evil day. Do you think today is an evil day? I mean, all you need to do is pick up the star or look at channel 59 and you see what is present in this age of darkness, what goes on every day, but we are to stand firm. And when Paul speaks about standing firm, he's really speaking about that Roman centurion that was a type of person that could be relied upon, that even under pressure, they would not give away. 
We must have the same determination in our battle against Satan. We are to stand firm against all the onslaughts of evil. The devil and his angels are strong, but they are not omnipotent. When we as believers make the necessary preparations for the battle, we will be able to stand firm. I think it's interesting that Paul uh, mentions this idea of standing firm three times, verse 11 and twice in 13. He keeps putting it out there as a command. He clearly believes that standing firm as a Christian is vital to our Christian existence and that putting on this whole armor and then he gives us these things, these weapons, he names them. He's saying, having fastened the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having fitted for our feet the readiness of the gospel and taking up the shield of faith. First, look at this belt of truth. Put it around our waist. A Roman soldier would take a belt, a leather apron, and wrap it around his cloak to protect his thighs and also to gird up his uniform so that he could be able to move securely and that he was prepared for vigorous activity. We saw in Isaiah 11.5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. We see in the Old Testament, God's anointed is characterized by righteousness and truth. This is the armor that the Messiah wears in to battle. And, and he provides the battle so that his people can ultimately get to truth. The truth of God is revealed in the gospel. And we should see it in the lives of believers who have really adopted this new humanity. You know, I ask you tonight to go home and read Ephesians 2.11 through Ephesians 4.32. And look how distinct Paul explains who we should be now because what Christ has done for us and what our attributes should show, how we should be now the new humanity, the one new man in Christ Jesus. No longer Jew or Greek, but church of God. Believers are to buckle on this belt of truth which should change our attitudes and give away nothing to the devil. Then Paul says, pick up the breastplate of righteousness so that we can stand firm against the forces of darkness. Again, the Roman soldier had a piece of armor that covered his chest that would protect him from lethal blows or arrows. Look at Isaiah 59, 17. He put, on the, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So we see that our God is more than able to fight our battles. 
All we need to do is what? Stand still. And then Paul talks about this footwear, which is that half boot that the soldiers would wear. It really wasn't a weapon as much as it was something that allowed them to hold their footing in a vigorous battle. And he says, we should have our feet fitted for the readiness of the gospel of peace. Think about it. He's saying even when we're under attack and being attacked, we are not to attack back, but we are to share the gospel with those who are attacking us. You don't give evil for evil, but you overcome evil with what? Good. This was picked up by Isaiah 52 and 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good tidings and publishes peace. You also see this in Romans 10, I think it's 15. It talks about how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. So this is about having firm footing, about being steadfast in the most challenging situations that we are to announce the gospel of peace while we're still engaged in spiritual battle. Then he says, take up the shield of faith. This shield of faith is not the little small round shield that most soldiers used to have that left most of their body unprotected, but it was a large shield that Roman soldiers covered themselves with. Reminiscent of the fact in Proverbs 30 and 5, it says that God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And he says that we should take up the shield of faith. And really he's saying that faith is our shield. That if we have faith, then we will receive all the promises on our behalf from a holy and loving God. 1 Peter 5, 8-9 through nine. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You know, I don't think we take that literally. I really don't think we as Christians recognize that if we truly love the Lord, if we truly call upon his name, we truly want to stand and serve him, that we are in direct conflict and we have direct opposition against all that we're trying to do for the things of God. And he tells us, how, how do you handle this roaring lion that's seeking to devour you? Resist him firm in your faith. Not having a pity party, he tells us right after the comma, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then he gives us another reason for having this shield of faith. Remember, this is not the short shield that the Roman soldiers would have. This is the one that they would cover their whole body with if you looked at a couple of movies, you'll see Roman soldiers where they would take the shield, crouch behind it, 
And then when the flaming arrows came over, it would bury themselves in the shield itself. And the shield itself had already been soaked in water so that it was able to extinguish those fiery arrows that had been dipped in pitch so that they can be fired flaming in a flaming situation so that it would cause deadly wounds and wreak havoc among the soldiers. So he wants us to recognize that we can't stop incoming, but we deal with incoming by the way we respond to it. That we never allow doubt, despair to guide us in times of persecution, but that we trust God and cover ourselves with the faith that he's already granted to us. The last two pieces of armor here, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. This helmet of salvation, again, isn't a positive. It means that salvation is our helmet. And we're urged to lay hold of that salvation that we have been given if we believe in Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That we can trust it. And then he gives us that final piece of equipment, the sword of the spirit. That is the word of God. And the sword of the spirit has a cutting edge to it because that sword is powerful and effective, but is of no use if you have never invested in learning it. To study, to show yourselves, to prove a right man, rightly dividing the word. Look at Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You see, you think you're reading the Bible. The Bible's reading you. And it knows all about you. You know, people tell me, well, Pastor God knows my heart. That's the problem. He knows your heart. He says these people, lips speak to me, but their hearts are far away. We see here, that we must put on the whole armor of God by praying and standing and proclaiming the mystery of the gospel. When we look down here in verse 18, we see that prayer is given great prominence in this battle with the powers of darkness. I'm going to tell you how important prayer is. Again, homework assignment. Go home and read Daniel chapter 10. And see what happens when Daniel prays in chapter 10. First, get the preference. Why was he praying? He was praying for his people who were under siege. And he goes on this Daniel fast for three weeks, right? And he eats these very base foods, not the foods that he really enjoys. And he abstains from meat. And he prays. And then after three weeks, the angel comes down with the answer to his prayer. But what does the angel say to him? 
The Lord heard your prayer and answered it the first day you said it. But I have spent the last three weeks fighting my way to you, dealing with the king of Persia. Persia represented then uh, empire larger than the Roman Empire. They had taken over. They had 127 provinces. And the angels are saying, I'm going to have to fight my way back. But you need to know that the Lord is attentive to your prayers. That means that's why we are to pray continually, to be alert, to continue to persevere and give petition unto the Lord. And we see here, Paul employs a word four times. Look what he says. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So he's constantly asking for the Lord's intercession, for the Lord to come to make himself known. Prayer is the foundation that every one of these weapons depend upon. Paul tells us to pray without ceasing to make petition. A petition is making your request to God as intercession for others. Supplication, that's humble prayer, uh, asking God to intercede for others to come to the rescue. Believers are to continually pray because their struggle is with not flesh and blood, but with the powers of darkness and is never ending. We are to pray and ask God to fill us with the Holy Spirit that we, even when we don't know how to pray, we allow the Spirit to take over so it prays what it ought to pray. We are to be alert, vigilant, stay awake, be watchful, and we are to intercede for all the saints at all the times. Look what Paul asked in 19. After he asked for the fourfold all, he says, could you also pray for me? Pray for me that God will give me the ability to proclaim the mystery of the gospel boldly and clearly so that men and women might be rescued from the devil's control. He wants to make the mystery of the gospel known. He wants them to know that everything, all the intentions of the Bible are summed up in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is in the Bible from beginning, middle, and the end. And he says, pray that a word may be given to me when I open my mouth. He says, I want to be used. I don't want to speak in my own authority, but pray that the Holy Spirit, the very meditations of my heart, the words of my mouth, the very meditations of my heart might be acceptable in God's sight. He doesn't want to speak on his own. He wants to be what God has already made him, that ambassador of the mystery of the gospel. Look at Ephesians 3, 6 through 8. This mystery, this is a mystery of the gospel. This mystery 
is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. The mystery of the gospel takes us all the way back to Genesis 12 when he calls Abram and he makes a Gentile a Jew. And then it comes up further and it tells us that there are, we are no longer strangers or sojourners, but we are fellow citizens in the household of God. Everyone in this room, I, I'm, I'm willing to try this without fear of contradiction. Every one of us is a Gentile. And the manifold wisdom of God shows that he will build a church that is Jew and Gentile for all who belong to him and that there would be no separation between us no hatred between us because we will all follow under the rule of God. We will all share in the unsearchable riches of Christ. But this is what really gets me, what Paul says here. At the end, it says, who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. He's saying that the church is supposed to evidence to those demons that work for Satan that the church is vital and alive and has been able to come together despite its ethnic backgrounds. Look at 1 Corinthians 10.31 when it says, no Jew, Greek, church of God. It gives you the distinctions that they held in the Old Testament. Either you were a Jew or you were a Gentile, which included all other ethnic groups. But it says, now you find your ethnicity as being in Christ because you have a new humanity. That's the whole piece of Ephesians 2, 11, all the way to 432, is that we have to be a new man. And if you're not a new man in Christ, guess what? You're not in Christ. Plain and simple. And when he speaks of this manifold wisdom, it's only used one time in all of the New Testament. It's used once in the Old Testament to speak of uh, Jacob's many colored coat, multicolored coat. And here it speaks of the different array of bright colors that are found in the kingdom. 
What does he, uh, Revelation 5, 9 tells you, every tongue, every tribe. John said, every tongue and every tribe before the throne of grace. So the very existence of the church shows the powers and the authorities that they are failing. Just like Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Ever wonder why the church is under constant attack? Some churches are under constant attack by the devil and his minions. It's because a true church reminds the rulers and the authorities that they are not under their dominion or leadership, but that they believe in the lordship of Christ Jesus. And because of that, that body will be hated by Satan. But what Paul says, we must press on into the Lord by the power of his spirit and by putting on the whole armor of God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this word should encourage our hearts like never before. It should bring clarity so that we might recognize what we are dealing with in this fallen world. It should make us be able to recognize that our prayers and our efforts are not in vain but that it is a process and that in that process we must trust you every step of the way. That's why we ask you to order our steps, oh Lord, in your word that we might walk in a way that honors you. Now Lord, let us do our homework assignments. Let us recognize how important it is for us to become steeped in this word so that we might be ready for the battle that is yet to come. It is in the precious name of your son and our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, amen.